You should be weary of people who say, we have no idea what the framers of the Constitution were thinking. This is absolutely false. You know, Alexander Hamilton and James Madison, John Jay, they wrote newspaper editorials. In fact, they wrote 87 editorials that eventually were collected into a single volume, which we know as the Federalist Papers. We know exactly what they were thinking. We know exactly what they meant when they decided on our Constitution. So for the individuals that would like to argue this and move us over to communism, nope, that's not going to happen. So on part three today, we're going to talk about the Communist Manifesto, how we became the United States of America in our early documents, and the arguments that went into play in order to make that happen. So sit back, grab yourself a cup of coffee or whatever it is that you're into. You're listening to America Emboldened with Greg Bolden on the America Out Loud Network. America Emboldened. Greg, I feel emboldened. You don't know the founding fathers. You don't know what they did. You don't know what they sacrificed. We have lost touch with the principles in the Constitution. Nobody's read the Declaration of Independence. You are voting for socialism, and you got what you voted for. Welcome, bold Americans, to part three of the series, Good to be King, the foundation of our constitutional freedoms, talking about the book and the life work of Michael Bednarik. Today, we're going to talk about communism and the reason why Americans are becoming okay with it because they do not understand what the framers had in mind when they founded our country with the Constitution. And they don't understand the arguments that went into play to ensure that we have the government that we have. So let's start with communism. We now know what a right is. We know what a privilege is. We understand our individual rights. We understand that we are sovereign. We are kings and queens, that property is very important, but maybe we don't own the property that we believe that we own because there's contracts with the government that where we're kind of granted renters, squatters rights, so to speak at this point in time. But when people start to attack us, it's important to know where that comes from. You have to know your enemy. And so when you have people like Bernie Sanders or AOC that are out there saying, well, no, we need to have a more socialist system or people that are arguing about social security and expanding things or socialized health care, it's important to understand where those tenants come from. And so back in the mid 1800s, Karl Marx and Friedrich Engels tried to come up with what would the perfect communist state look like. And they did so by creating 10 planks of communism. And that would be 10 planks that they needed to get society to go on board to achieve their goals. And so I'm going to have Michael Benark start listing out the different planks and talk about why it's important to understand that communism is all around us in the United States now. The ten planks of the Communist Manifesto. Plank number one, abolition of private property. No property, no rights. If I stand up on a soapbox and I say, I'm going to start a government where I'm going to take all of your rights away, 
How many people are going to volunteer? Nobody with half a brain. <laughs> but nowadays, it seems like people are volunteering for this type of thing. What does abolition mean to abolish something, right? It means to get rid of it completely. Do you think that in communism, they want to allow some private property or no private property? I'll let you figure that out. See, John Adams, he actually had a very interesting quote. It's the reason why Michael Bednarik spends so much time on making sure that you understand that property and rights are intertwined. John Adams says, the moment the idea is admitted into society that property is not as sacred as the law of God and that there is not a force of law and public justice to protect it, anarchy and tyranny commence. So we understand if it's a sacred as the law of God, if our rights and our property are completely tied together, then what this is telling us is this first plank is looking to take you away from your connectedness with your God-given rights. Let's get to number two. Now, the other nine planks to the Communist Manifesto are basically just methods for doing the first thing. How are we going to take your rights, uh, property away? Well, number two is a heavy progressive income tax. A progressive income tax means the more money you make, the higher the percentage. Do we have a progressive income tax in the United States? Yes. Can you say IRS? As you'll hear in the second half of today's show, we originally did not have a tax uh, bracket as part of the Constitution. There was nothing written to collect taxes. And what ended up happening was we owed money back to France and Spain because we borrowed money from them in order to fight England. Now, they gave us that money because, well, they didn't like England. They wanted to see us win. But because we had no money, all of the states started printing their own as well as our government. And so we had horrible inflation, much like we had after the COVID pandemic, when Trump and then Biden decided to print out stimulus checks for everybody. And Michael Benark would go on to even say that this is seen in our tax code, that the people that are lucky enough to fall in the 50% tax bracket because they make so much money, well, they are the strongest slaves and lucky enough to carry the heaviest rocks. Our tax code does not allow for people to have life, liberty, and the pursuit of happiness if you look at your money as something you worked for and achieved and part of your property. You've likely heard people talk about Elon Musk or Jeff Bezos and they need to pay more in taxes. Well, that's dangerous, too. Did you know that there was a time in our country where people paid a ridiculous amount in taxes? Well, Michael Bedark is about to answer that question. He has a very smart person in his audience. Listen to this. What do you think the maximum was that IRS has ever collected in history? 98. 98%. How did you know that? I remember reading it somewhere. Okay. Between 1941 and 1942, during World War II, there were some people who were taxed 98%. Can you imagine 98% of what you earn going to the government, meanwhile watching somebody down the street only getting taxed at 12%, 13%? Is that just, is that taxation with representation or without representation? 
Just asking. All right, let's move over to the third plank of communism. Uh, about abolition of all rights of inheritance. If your parents die, the government is going to take half. Why? What did they do to get half? They just want to make sure that your parents don't leave you a million dollars so that you can get more and more money. It's a lot easier to become a multimillionaire if mom and dad leave you one to start with. We don't want that to happen. I've always felt that the rights of inheritance and the tax that got put on here, and by the way, after George Bush, he put back in the 50%, it was much more favorable before George W. And it hasn't been turned back since. But my thoughts on this, and I've taught the people that are on the left, and they go, well, Greg, you know, why shouldn't it be taxed? You know, your parents have passed and that money should be collected in order to benefit everybody else. Okay, let's go back to the property and rights. Now, before we can start to talk about property and rights, let's also ask a question. When your parents made that money, were they taxed on it? And if they were taxed on it, then isn't that double dipping? That money now has to be filtered. That's kind of called money laundering in order to clean the money back and give more to the government. So your parents passing away, you should be able to secure future generations with wealth. But the government has kept generations within a family from accumulating. Now, what justifies a tax on dying? Everybody's going to die. Isn't that the government cashing in on it? But it's the third plank of the Communist Manifesto. And it's now something that we practice here in the United States. It's wrong. Wrong, wrong, wrong. Uh, confiscation of all property of emigrants and rebels. You ever fly internationally? You got to fill out a card. If you're carrying more than $10,000, they'll take it. I always thought that this was interesting when you go through the passport system traveling into another country or you're leaving to go from one place to another. They're asking how much money you're carrying because they're like, oh, my God, it's criminal if I carry more than that dollar amount. Nope, they'll confiscate it. They'll take it. So I always wondered, how does that work if I'm moving to another country and I need to take all my cash with me? Well, good luck. You got to work it out because you have to make sure that the United States gets their money on your way out. Another state that's very uh, similar to this is California. Don't move to California. When you go to sell your house and move away from California, they tax you from here the kingdom come. It's the same type of system that we have, confiscation of property and, and uh, rebels for immigrants and rebels, a plank of the Communist Manifesto. The next one is the central bank, which is why you often hear on my show, I say, Damn it, Woodrow Wilson for the Federal Reserve. Here it is. A central bank. We're going to talk about the Federal Reserve. We can go right on down the line. Ten out of ten items in the Communist Manifesto are here in the United States right now. Well, since I don't have an audio recording of Michael going through the rest of them, I'm going to highlight them for you. So we start to talk about the Federal Reserve, right? And we know that if we were to look up how to call the Federal Reserve, we can't find a phone number where you and I can do so. And this is the most powerful organization in the world. Really, it is. The Federal Reserve is in charge and controls the printing of money, setting the rates. And as a result, it doesn't matter at that point in time who is president, who we put in to control our government. The Federal Reserve 
is completely unconstitutional. You cannot tell me anything otherwise. It goes back to what Michael Benark said. I think in part one, I was trying to teach that section of, he said, just because it's on the books doesn't mean that it's constitutional. We can go back years later and say, oh, nope, we had that, but it was unconstitutional the entire time. And the Federal Reserve is one of those things that I believe is unconstitutional the entire time. It's a private company. It's not part of the American government anymore than we have, you know, uh, going to Amazon when they make their deliveries being part of the post office. It's just simply not true. But we have a central bank, and that's also part of the Communist Manifesto. We have government control of communications and transportation. You ever look at your cell phone bill? Your cell phone bill has lots of taxes in it to use the FCC airwaves. In addition to that, the FCC controls the radio and television signals in the United States. You have to do quarterly reports, monthly reports in order to keep that license or else you cannot use the airwaves. In fact, when it was first started, I'm talking about radio, the government was trying to figure out how could they control radio for the entire world because they saw it to be such an important tool. I'm talking about the American government. We patented Marconi's parts, the Italian uh, radio frequency maker, Marconi, and we called it American Marconi. And we started putting him out of business. So the United States has always wanted control of these things. And we have the Federal Aviation Administration. I can't fly my drone when I want to fly my drone now because Joe Biden's always flying into the airport near my house. And so I get locked down. I should have a right to be able to fly over top my home. And I can't even get the darn thing off the ground without getting a license to be able to fly it through my drone software service. You can talk about every state department of transportation, you know, Pete Buttigieg, motor vehicles, they're able to control all transportation in the country. And so when they talk about plank number six, government control of communication and transportation, we have it. You cannot travel anywhere in the United States without government approval, with the exception of maybe if you were to get your certificate of title to your car and drive uh, without needing to get a driver's license. But good luck without your registration. Good luck without your insurance. There's still going to be government approvals should you get pulled over. You can probably explain it, but the cop is not going to understand. You're going to have to go to court before you win. Number seven, government ownership of factories and agriculture. <laughs> Do you remember uh, Enron, WorldCom, Chrysler? Do you remember Ford, the bailouts of 2008? Do you remember when they put all that money to the factories in order to keep American jobs? Yeah, it sounds a lot like government ownership of factories and agriculture. They might not have taken full control over, but if you remember President Obama putting in czars, that's right. You put in czars at people's corporations. And right now we have agriculture that is controlled extremely from beginning of farm to table. They control everything. Number eight in the planks was government control of labor. And we regulate that as well. Although we don't really have anything that's regulating the unions, uh, the federal agencies like OSHA certainly oversees it. Corporate farms, regional planning is number nine. Now Monsanto has kind of taken over all the seed. In fact, if you're living alongside a Monsanto farm and you start growing your own seed, 
it's going to cross pollinate and then they're going to say well that is ours and we get these corporate farms with regional planning now and so that was part of the manifesto and the final the tenth plank was government control of education <laughs> well considering i work at a public school i do understand that the government does control education in this country if the government did not control education in this country then perhaps there would be a voucher system for those of us that pay taxes and send our children off to a private school. Maybe there would be another way to do things. But ever since the Department of Health, Education and Welfare was established in 1953, we've had American students that were ranking in the world of math and science. And people wanted to come here. However, in the last uh, 20 years, that is not the case. Statistics now rank us not at the top, but 21st in math and science. I think we're even down to 29th. And so now we're looking at this and going to government controls education. We have corporate farms, regional planning, government control of labor. Uh, we have government ownership of factories and agriculture, government control, communication, transportation, a centralized bank. Uh, we confiscate property of emigrants and rebels. We have abolition of all rights of inheritance. We have heavy progressive income tax, abolition of private property, holy crap we're a communist country we are following the communist manifesto so when are you going to overthrow your government <laughs> you're not you're not because if you cared enough you would have already but maybe by doing these episodes maybe by doing this five-part series and bringing back the late Michael Bednark to more listeners through my listeners that might've been unfamiliar with him, maybe I'm starting to wake you up as Michael Bednark wanted to do for people. He was an iconoclast. He liked to break down the things that you thought you knew and then completely crush your soul and go, I need to rethink that now. And so hopefully you're rethinking things. When we come back, second half of the show, we're going to talk about the documents you know there's a, a famous musical called hamilton you know the the music's great the rap is great uh in that the lyrics everything it's it's very well done lin manuel uh he was phenomenal in what he wrote that all stated it's revisionist history and we're going to talk about how alexander hamilton likely was ready to sell out the united states in many ways and so we're going to talk about the uh federalist papers and the fundamental purpose of to why we established our country. We'll be right back, everybody. But before we get to our commercial break here with the network, just want to remind everybody, you're enjoying these shows, go over to uh, americaembolden.com, my website. You can reach out, contact me, support the show, do all that stuff. And then in the meantime, go over to the uh, website for the network, americaoutloud.com. You go over to there, you can find all the sponsors that help support Keep the Lights on America Out Loud that brings my show and all the talk radio to you. Support them so that way you can support this network keeping America first. You've been listening to America Bolden with Greg Bolden on the America Out Loud Network. I'll be right back. With the rise of independent media, we are now AmericaOutloud.news. For the genius of the United States is not found in its executives or legislatures, nor its ambassadors, authors, colleges, or churches, nor even in its newspapers or inventors. The genius of the United States is we the people. AmericaOutloud.news, liberty 
and justice for all. Cofix RX nasal solution has completed the circle and is now offering throat spray with povidone iodine. That completes the protocol doctors like Peter McCullough recommend. If staying healthy is important, you'll want to make sure to add throat spray to your next order of Cofix RX. For a limited time and exclusive for America Out Loud listeners only, you can save 25% off your entire order. Let's double down against colds, flus, strep, RSV, HRV, COVID, and more. Click the banner or go to America Out Loud shop to get 25% off your entire order. Use coupon code OUTLOUD25. That's coupon code OUTLOUD25. For 25 years, Global Healing has proudly produced the highest quality supplements and cleansing programs that are rooted in nature and backed by science. Get 15% off all of our products using code OUTLOUD. Global Healing, giving you the power to take control of your health naturally. Are you glad that you live in a communist country? What are you going to do about it? We've got to draw the line somewhere. Welcome back, Bold Americans. Second half of the show, we are getting into the thick of it now. Now that we've established that our country is leaning on communism, we have all the planks that Karl Marx uh, put out there. Now we got to figure out how did we get here? Right. We, we understand our rights. We understand what a privilege is. We understand the form of government we are. We understand that we're sovereign. Right. We, we've come a long way over the first uh, first two parts. Now we're halfway through part three. Well, let's get into the founding documents. When you think about the war that we fought, what, what's the word that comes to mind? It's likely the Revolutionary War. Right. It's not like the uh, American Rebellion. But Benjamin Franklin, uh, he felt that the reason why it should be uh, a revolution was because it's returning us to a state of being where we should have been before there was ever kings and queens. We should have had these rights reclaimed long before the king of England. And so therefore, it was a revolution back to a state of being. Now, Franklin also felt that the fighting was probably more properly referred to as an American rebellion because it took a rebellion in order to get this to all happen. So fighting broke out in April 19th, 1775 at the battles of Lexington and Concord. You can find this in all your eighth grade textbooks, seventh grade textbooks. The reason why fighting broke out was because the British troops were sent to do what? confiscate the guns and ammunition of the colonists. They did this because they knew without their guns and without their ammo, they could do whatever they wanted to do. And so that's where we get the shot heard round the world. And people on both sides started dying. But it wasn't until a year later that we had a formal declaration of war. So remember, April 19th, 1775 is where it started. But it wasn't until the Declaration of Independence, while people were already dying, was approved July 4th, 1776, that we really have the beginning of the American Revolution. Up until then, it's probably more of a rebellion. Where is the spirit 
of rebellion and revolution in 2023. Now, I dangerously perhaps connected that to January 6th. And the reason I dangerously connected the January 6th is because if you believed back then that the election was fraudulent, that the government was doing something illegal because the president was telling you that, then it makes complete sense to go down there and demand better. That was in the spirit of what our constitution gives people the rights to do. But obviously the courts are not going to see it that way as we've seen many people locked up over their actions that day. So it comes with a price to rebel. The government had to be established. So as they're fighting, they get the Declaration of Independence. And at this point in time, our country is seen kind of like people in Europe see the European Union, like Germany, Italy, and Switzerland could just be changed with like Delaware, New Jersey, and New York and Pennsylvania. You would see it almost like there is all individual countries. And so the framers and founding fathers established a federal government of the United Colonies and of the right ought to be free and independent states. That's the way it was written in the Declaration of Independence. Then they established the Articles of Confederation, which bound those 13 sovereign and independent nation states together in a loosely organized coalition. And people lived happily ever after. <laughs> That's what Michael Benark would like to say. Except they didn't really live happily ever after. But one of those things that's important there is because we established 13 sovereign and independent nation states together in these United States, that is the reason why we have states' rights. That is the reason why we have state constitutions, meaning you need to be aware not just of the Constitution of the United States, but of the state that you live in. And the state that you live in, their constitution supersedes the United States Constitution. So if you have more rights living in Delaware, where I reside, than underneath the Constitution as defined by the Founding Fathers, then in that case, when you're living in Delaware, you have more uh, protection of those rights, which I would say, if that's the case, we should amend the Constitution to include everything that the states allow into one document, because maybe they figured it out more. So I talked earlier about the United States got into this whole communism thing right from the get-go. Got in from the get-go because we needed money to pay back France and Spain. And the only way to pay back that money was to figure out, okay, where are we getting money from? So they just started printing the money to repay the loans from those countries. And that's what our government still does to this day. We're having a bad financial uh, year. We print more money and we manipulate the currency under the Federal Reserve. Well, this is before that. Each state back then had its own official currency. And the Continental Congress also had the ability to print its own money. So we had 14 different currencies back then. And they were printing it as fast as they could, which meant inflation went through the roof in our country right at the get-go. And eventually, if you have a bunch of worthless money, no one wants to hold the money whatsoever. So they had to figure out how to make it so we could pay back our bills. So in order to solve these problems, 
they selected delegates and they told them to go up to Philadelphia back in 1787 because they had to amend the Articles of Confederation. They needed to edit them and whatever deficiencies were there so that way we could have a better government. Enter Alexander Hamilton, right? From the musical Hamilton, but really from all of his work. He enters in because he is going to argue in favor of a strong, centralized national government rather than a loosely organized federal government that was first established. Now, the definition between the two, federal is of or pertaining to a compact or league, especially a league between nations or states, and national is of pertaining to or maintained by a nation as an organized whole or independent political unit. Now, most people think that our Constitution was just all, you know, wow, what a great document. This is awesome. This works. But that's not the case. It's not the case because you had people like Alexander Hamilton who wanted that strong central government and he wanted something that more resembled the government of England. And he even at the time had asked George Washington that if he could be the first king of the United States. So we're glad that George Washington said no. Hamilton wanted a nationalized government, but Americans would not support the plan because they had just fought against a strong national government with England. So he had a very difficult time trying to uh, get his support within his own circles. But he created a label for individuals. See, he was a federalist and uh, he felt that federalist in the federalist papers, he said, the definition of a Confederate Republic seems simply to be an assemblage of societies or an association of two or more states into one state. The extent modifications and objects of the federal authority are mere matters of discretion, so long as the separate organization of the members be not abolished, so long as it exists by a constitutional necessity for local purposes, though it should be in a perfect subordination to the general authority of the Union. It would still be, in fact and in theory, an association of states or a confederacy. This fully corresponds in every rational important of terms with the idea of a federal government. So there was another faction and they opposed a strong government and that was led by Patrick Henry. Well, that's one of the people. Now, Patrick Henry, give me liberty or give me death. That's not the person Hamilton probably wanted to go up against. And so he started saying, that the fate of this question and America may depend on this. Have they said, we the states, have they made a proposal of a compact between states? If they had, this would be a confederation. It is otherwise most clearly a consolidated government. It is said eight states have adopted this plan. I declare that if 12 states and a half had adopted it, I would with manly firmness and in spite of an erring world, reject it. So Patrick Henry and the other delegates that were aligned with him, they opposed Alexander Hamilton's plan. In fact, the Federalist, however, Hamilton had already used that term to describe his own faction. So Patrick Henry was the real faction uh, of Federalist. Hamilton was trying to hijack the word, but then Hamilton spins it and he labels Patrick Henry as anti-Federalist. It's kind of like, 
you know, if you're for vaccines and if you are critical of vaccines, you're immediately labeled anti-vaccine and you're sitting there going, but I believe that some vaccines are actually really good for public health. What do you mean? It's anti-vaccine. I want safe vaccines. So anyway, Hamilton wins the entire war basically of the uh, public persona, public thought. Eventually, Alexander Hamilton, James Madison, and John Jay, they write under the names as Cato and Publius. Now, they are Roman politicians, and back then you would write under names that people knew to give credibility. And Alexander Hamilton and them, they have 87 editorials as the Federalist Papers. And so we know exactly what was going on. We know all of the drama between the Anti-Federalist and the Federalist. And eventually, after two years and debating, the Constitution gets ratified June 21st, 1789. But there's a condition that gets added on. They want a Bill of Rights added. But Alexander Hamilton said something really interesting. He goes, but what if we miss one of the rights? Would that mean that anything we don't list is not protected as a right? And he was probably correct on that. But... They got their way and they started giving the Bill of Rights and the Bill of Rights gets added right after ratification. And by 1789, it's written by 1791. It is ratified. So basically, the Declaration of Independence was in 1776. The Constitution gets signed 1787. And it took two years after that to ratify the Constitution and draft the Bill of Rights, both of which took place in 1789 another two years to ratify that Bill of Rights, finally ending in 1791. A long time went by, 15 years went by before our government was finally founded. Our framers, our founding fathers, they didn't rush this document. They didn't make a mistake along the way. They had great debate to make sure that the Constitution was going to protect your property, protect your rights, and also understand what a sovereign state and sovereign being is and was. And they did this within a preamble. I'm going to go over to my good friend, Michael Bednarik, explain the preamble and fundamental purpose of the Constitution. We have the preamble. What is a preamble? It's a paragraph that says why we are writing this document is a statement of purpose. Most of you should know this by heart. It says, we the people of the United States, in order to form a more perfect union, establish justice, ensure domestic tranquility, provide for the common defense, promote the general welfare, and secure the blessings of liberty to ourselves and our posterity, do ordain and establish this Constitution for the United States of America. Okay? That's why we're writing the Constitution. So, to, uh, to form a more perfect union, that means they already had a union. The Articles of Confederation. But we said that one doesn't work so well, so we're going to form a more perfect union. Right? For these reasons... And then it says we're going to, uh, to secure the blessings of liberty to ourselves and our posterity. Does that mean for everybody? No, that's how we should interpret it. 
But that's not what they meant. And also notice that the first line says, we the people of the United States. And the last line says, uh, establish this constitution for the United States of America. United States and United States of America. Those are two different things. One is a republic, the other is a democracy. We'll cover that in just a few moments with Michael, but just to kind of point out here, we have the power, we the people, we have the rights. Government has the privilege to serve us. And that's what this sets up. It sets up a right versus a privilege, and it becomes what's called negative power, negative pressure applied back towards the government, which is, I think, very important to understand that to secure the blessings of liberty for ourselves and our posterity, we wanted to make sure that we had the political power, also known as a political trust. The Constitution is a political trust. Who wrote the trust? The Founding Fathers. What did they want to give us? Money? No. Liberty and security. They fought for it, they had it, and they wanted to make sure they transfer it to their posterity. So what did they do? They wrote up a trust, a contract, with a group of people who are the trustees. Who are the trustees of this contract? Government. Anybody who goes into office. Why do they take an oath of office to solemnly swear to uphold and defend the Constitution? So that if they violate that contract, they are guilty of perjury and treason. Thomas Jefferson had words that uh, people attribute to him. We're not sure who said this back then, but it's attributed to Thomas Jefferson. Let no more be said about confidence in men, but rather bind them down from mischief with the chains of the Constitution. See, the Constitution gave negative authority to our elected officials when they put their hand on the Bible and they solemnly swear to uphold the Constitution. It is saying that they are entering into a trust. They are becoming a fiduciary responsibility to the people that they serve, meaning that they can be uh, charged with high crimes and treason for not serving the way that they are supposed to because Congress shall make no law is protected speech in that first amendment. We also talk about the United States shall guarantee to every state in this union, a Republican form of government. So we are a Republic. You can find that article four, section four, clause one, the United States is not a democracy. Despite the fact that your politicians right now would like to continue to tell you it's a democracy over and over and over again. We are a republic. We the people are the governments. We the people have the rights of governments. Those that choose to serve get the privilege to serve the trust of the people through the constitutional powers. So it's important that we understand the powers and privileges that we've given to our government authorities, because there are some powers that our government has as the United States of America, which is why Michael Bednark 
put the two separately and said, well, one's a democracy, one's a republic. We are a representative democracy as the United States of America. Once we elect those officials, it becomes the democracy of what they are doing, and that is their power of what they can do. But there's checks and balances in there, and they're not really being honored. And we've moved away from the constitutional principles within all of this. We've moved away from the checks and balances of the legislative branch. We no longer uh, really have a legislative branch that operates the way it originally did, the executive branch with executive orders I kind of already covered earlier, and then the judicial branch. You know, we have a judicial branch that doesn't even uh, <laughs> want to work within a framework of ethics and moral standards. I think that's a major problem. If we're going to form a more perfect union in order to establish justice within our judicial branch, then it's really important that we have ethics and we have transparency from those that serve. And we'll get into some of that and your constitutional rights on tomorrow's show. Hope that I've been honoring your time well. You've learned something as we're going through the teachings of Michael Benark. Uh, I would like you to also purchase this book. I'd say that every show, go get Good to Be King because I'm, I'm skipping so much good material as I summarize. It's uh, available on Michael Benark's website, benark.org. You spell his last name B-A-D-N-A-R-I-K.org. So you can get that book and you can become an expert to the best of your abilities. It's really a masterful piece of work that I'm working off of uh, to try to bring his, uh, his work back to life for those that are being introduced to it for the very first time. Well, hope that we've honored your time. Well, I'll be back tomorrow with part four of the foundation of our constitutional freedom summary, the work of Michael Bednarik. You've been listening to America Emboldened with Greg Bolden here on the America Out Loud Network. Be bold, America. Uh-huh.